Welcome to the Maharat Cast. My name is Rabba Ramey Smith. I'm your host coming to you from London. My guest this episode is Rabbi Jeffrey Fox, fondly known as Reb Jeff. Reb Jeff is the Rosh HaYeshiva and Dean of Faculty of Yeshivat Maharat and was the first graduate of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah. Upon graduation, he served as the rabbi of Kehilat Kesher, the community synagogue of Tanafly and Inglewood, for seven years. In Reb Jeff's tenure at Kesher, the community grew threefold, from 30 families to nearly 100. During that time, Reb Jeff also taught at Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, as well as the Florence Melton Adult Education School in Bergen County. He has served on the board of the Synagogue Leadership Initiative at the UJA of NNJ. Reb Jeff is a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute and has been a member of the faculty of the Drisha Institute, the Florence Melton Adult Education School, and Yeshivat Hadar. And for those who don't know him, Reb Jeff is a brilliant scholar and compassionate pastoral figure. For those of us in the first cohort, Reb Jeff was our Kolbo, the Renaissance man who led the yeshiva in so many areas in its early years. Besides for being my Rosh Yeshiva, my fearless leader, my mentor, my spiritual guide, Reb Jeff has also become a dear, dear friend. It is my absolute pleasure to share his wisdom with you all today. Take us all the way back. When did you know you wanted to be a rabbi? So I've wanted to be a rabbi since I was in the eighth grade. Um, I was a little bit of a rabbinic nerd. Um, I thought when I was in eighth grade that I would be in the conservative movement. And then through high school, I became more religious, ended up in the Orthodox world, um, spent some time in yeshiva in Israel. And it was clear to me from a young age that the rabbi in my shul was the coolest guy in the room. And I wanted to be just like him. He knew everything about everybody. He was connected to all the families in my community. Uh, he knew my whole family. And he was uh, like a kiddush in shul. Everybody wanted to shake the rabbi's hand. And I wanted to be that person. Even knowing he wanted to be a rabbi, I was curious if he ever knew he wanted to be a rabbi in a women's space. I don't think I ever imagined it before before coming here. I spent seven years in a shul in uh, Tenafly, Englewood, New Jersey. When I was in the shul, I did have a vision of what an Orthodox community might look like. And to my mind, that included things like women's tefillah. So this is the early 2000s in Bergen County. So... In Bergen County, having a women's tefillah was a big deal. Women dancing with the Torah and Simchas Torah was a big deal. And so to me, it was obvious that that had to be a piece of what orthodoxy was. Um, and I thought that through the Beit Knesset, there could be only a limited amount of change. And what I came to think was, or I came to believe, was that change that comes through the Beit Midrash, through kind of deep Torah, can be deeper, can be systemic, and can be longer lasting than simply a partnership minion or a woman's tefillah or a woman dancing with the, with the sacred Torah. And did you know Rabasar at this point? So Rabasar and I were colleagues in the sense that I was, I had graduated and she was finishing up smicha. And I was trying to imagine at that time ways in which she could work in my shul. I was actually trying to imagine an internship role for her um, at that time. Uh, although the shul wasn't prepared for that. And I guess she and I had been dreaming about some of this stuff for a long time which is why when I left the shul and then moved back to Riverdale, she, together with Ravavi, kind of called me up and said, hey, you want to interview for this crazy job and be the Rosh Hashiva of Yishivat Marat, which didn't yet exist. So I left the shul in the summer of 09. Rabbi Sarah's ordination, or then Maharat Sarah's ordination, was in March of 09. 
and they announced that they were starting a new yeshiva in 2010. And the year I left the shul, I was doing a whole bunch of adult education gigs. I was working at Risha, at Milton, and at the first year of Yeshiva Hadar. So I had three different jobs. It was crazy. And Sarah calls and says, are you interested? Um, kind of in late October, maybe late November even. And um, we set up like a trial shear. And part of what they had to convince me of was that um, this was going to last and it would be a job. We had four kids at that point and I needed to support, help support a family. Thankfully, Beth worked at SAR already. So I'll say the following. I met with one of my rabbinic inspirations, Rabbi Shmuel Greenberg, Rabbi Shmuel Greenberg actually who's not well. He's, he's sick. They, they gave him a new name, Alter Shmuel Ben Chavalea. So maybe a little refuash they to him. He was one of my inspirations to go into the rabbin. He was the first person I met who was like a serious Talmud Chacham who would like on Sundays we'd go and play football with him and he'd give us a little sheer and give us pizza. And he was one of the few people kind of outside of my net, normal network that I met with when I was leaving the shul and kind of thinking about this position. And I said, how can I describe the position? I'm going to be like a kolbo teaching a lot, halacha, gemara in the beginning and some fundraising, all this kind of stuff. And um, he's not from a community that would sort of naturally support Smichal and Ashim. And he turned to me and he kind of paused for a moment and he said, you know what? I don't think this is good for Kal Yisrael, but I think this is good for Jeff Fox. And uh, it was kind of the sign of a mentor who kind of understood who I was um, and appreciated the Torah that I had to bring to the world and saw that this was an amazing opportunity. Um, I was also part of the first class of Yeshivat Chovei Torah as a student. When my dad, when I started there, my dad said to me, are you sure you're going to get a job? And I got a job when I graduated. And when I left the shul, my dad said to me, are you sure you're going to have a job when you leave? Yeah, I said, yeah, I think so. And then when Sarah and Ravavi came to me and said, you want to do this? My dad said, are you sure they're going to pay you? And um, there were a couple of months, those first couple of years, where like I had to wait a week <laughs> to get paid for like some of the money to come in, um, where you know it was a little scary. Um, and uh, thank God that has not happened since those first couple of months. And uh, even over the course of the pandemic, the board and Rav Sarah have been extraordinary in terms of you know, keeping the infrastructure in place and development growing. And it's, it's extraordinary to see what's happened over these last many years. Reb Jeff had gone from being in only male yeshiva spaces to women's educational spaces like Yeshivat Maharat and Drisha. I had to know what that was like. Correct. I had all my, all of my intensive Torah learning in Yeshivat Shalavim and Yeshivat Chovei Torah were all male environments. And then all of a sudden, I show up in an all-female environment, and I was the only guy. Just to add another piece of the puzzle, not only did I, was I only ever in serious yeshivot that were all men, I also grew up with two brothers. So my whole life was spent amongst, um, sort of on the male side of that equation. And now I have four sons, and, uh, and so there's a lot of boys in my life. Um, I will say that there were some obvious differences from the very beginning. But part of my goal was from the outset, and then this probably was a mistake in retrospect, was to treat the yeshiva like I had my own, same as my own experience. These were students who wanted to learn. The fact that you were women from the beginning to me was basically irrelevant. I was going to teach Torah. Hopefully you were going to learn something. I would say something interesting and I would be able to impart a method and a love of Torah to my students who happened to be women. And that was kind of the way I walked into it. And I think that I was trying to be 
I don't know what's the word for colorblind, like genderblind, if that's a phrase, um, in a way that's probably educationally unhealthy. Um, because there are in fact different styles that people have and different, there are ways in which women learn in every field that are different than the ways in which men learn. Can you think of some key moments that made you realize that? One of the moments that I, I remember, I remember, I have a very specific memory of Chavrusa's working together. And in my experience, in a male yeshiva, when one Chavrusa was ahead, they would keep going ahead and get as far away ahead in the materials they could. And that was the way it worked. And nobody was particularly checking in on anybody else and nobody was going to help anybody else. And there were moments at the very beginning where it was a small group. There were four or six or eight students and people were working together in a way that simply didn't happen and doesn't happen in all male environments. There was a type of a collaboration that was inspiring. If one Harusa was struggling, other people would help in a sort of natural organic way. Um, what does this word mean? What is this sugi doing? Who's this Rishon? Um, what's this crazy question? What does Reb Jeff mean by that? Those were normal pieces of a conversation that didn't happen in a male baby drash. Not because anybody told men not to do that, and not because anybody told women that you should do that. There is something different about the way men and women learn, and that's okay. And it turns out that my style of the way I approach Torah is also much less competitive. I like to imagine that the Torah wants a world that is more collaborative and less competitive. And that what's sometimes referred to as a feminine style of education actually has what to offer. And at some level, learning in an all-male or in an all-female environment is actually a mistake. Um, I understand the value of it and the need for it, but educationally, we're missing out on what we have to learn from the other. Did it click at any point that there was something really different about this space, other than just the style of learning? Well, we were also learning in the Drisha Beit Midrash. There were a lot of women around, and there were only one or two or three three men in the room, in the whole building. You know, it it doesn't, it didn't click. Like it didn't, it, it, I didn't reflect on it at the time. And many people have asked me, they're not the first person to ask me. Well, I might be the first person with insider knowledge that we did put scented candles around the yeshiva. Right, okay, so I was about to say, I was about to say there were scented candles and there was hand cream and there were a lot more tissues and a lot more crying. And that's true. Um, and there was a lot more chocolate and a lot more food. <laughs> and there was a lot of pumping and nursing and diapers being changed. Um, I guess part of what happened was that by the time I came to the yeshiva, uh, we had three young kids and a fourth one was on the way. And my wife is a big nurser. So I, she had, I think, in many ways, trained me for what it meant to be a guy around a woman who was nursing and what it meant to be a father in a lot of ways and what it meant to be sort of supportive in the ways that it just felt natural in the yeshiva. And if somebody had to pump or nurse or change a diaper, you know, Sheer just kind of went on because that was who we were. Um, and there was something quite beautiful about that. And it was, some, it was sometimes disruptive. People need to walk out of the room. But it was simple and it was, it was not complicated. In a certain sense, it's become more complicated today. People, I don't think, would feel the same comfort of nursing in the same room with me. I think, for, I think there are more boundaries. I think I am, I'm, I'm older and therefore a little more mature and I, I carry myself in a different way as the Rosh Ha Yeshiva in a different way um, with a different kind of authority. Um, and keeping that distance is important. 
and the fact that there are other women who are full-time and who are around the students who give space for those conversations, I think is important, is, is really important. I was the only one who was there with everybody for eight hours a day, every day. Um, so I needed to be the sounding board and the coach and the Rebbe and helping to pick out wedding dresses and all those things all at the same time. Um, because there was, I was, there was no else, there was no one else who could be there regularly. And how did you handle that? I think the real answer is thank God for Beth, that we have a very strong relationship and I was able to, I was able to sort of check myself and sort of try to understand better what was going on. And she was a little bit of a window into, I could ask her things if I, if I was like confused at all the emotions going on, uh, she, she would help me, um, as did Rabbi Sarah. And I think in fairness, also, I should say thank God for my mom. <laughs> my mom is like a strong woman who, uh, who helped me learn what it means to be a husband, like a son and a, and a partner. Um, and my parents modeled a certain kind of relationship that uh, of sort of equality in terms of who they were as people. Um, and so I think because I had a sort of a network of people that I could trust, when things were kind of over the top, there was a place for me to go with my questions. And, you know, Beth helped me a lot in the, in the very beginning. It was, it was helpful. What did it teach you about being a man? I think one of the things that I learned or that what people learn when you spend a lot of time, I'll put it differently. Well, I was teaching material that I had already learned, but all the material that I was teaching, I had learned in an all-male environment. And so there's some areas where you expect it to feel different. One expects needed to be different between women and men, but also learning Hilchot Shabbat with women was different learning with men. And so part of what I realized was the limitations of the worldview that I came in with, um, the limitations of the Torah worldview that I came in with. And it was kind of eye-opening and shocking to, to realize that there were just pieces of Torah that are absent when you only learn with all men. Can you think and of any sad. examples? Um, there is a kind of human sensitivity that is absent when you learn amongst all men where halakha can sometimes feel like math. And in a Beit Midrash of women, one is reminded, I think, that halakha is really more akin to art. Um, and that reminder is a real, I think, in a deep way, a redeemer of Torah. Um, it makes Torah better. It makes the, makes the halakha actually respond to the needs of human beings, not just, not just physical needs, but emotional needs in a way that a man's Beit Midrash just doesn't emphasize. It's not absent from male Beit Midrash. It's just not it's not foregrounded in a way that it is in a female space. I'm curious if in the last 12 years, Reb Jeff has seen a shift in the way female leadership is received. I think for sure on a professional communal level, even if um, the Orthodox centrist establishment isn't prepared for, you know, women, women rabbis, it is clear that the OU and the RCA recognize the value of women's leadership, women's religious leadership in synagogue life and Jewish professional life, which is why the OU is trying to do it and trying to teach it and model it. And even though Rabbanit Henkin and Nishmat aren't going to ever say that they're giving smicha because they're not, the fact is that Yoatzot have deeply impacted the centrist Orthodox community in a, and, and in, in a way that couldn't have happened without the advent of Maharat. Maharat created a space that allowed those people to walk into This episode is sponsored by JOFA, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. Since 1997, JOFA has been advocating for expanding women's rights and opportunities within the framework of Jewish law. 
to build a vibrant and equitable Orthodox community. Their theory of change revolves around ensuring women's involvement wherever Jewish communal decisions are made, especially around advancing clergy and lay leadership opportunities, ritual engagement, gender equity in education, and gender-based social justice issues. They provide leadership development opportunities and written tools and guidelines to help you make a change in your own community. Follow Jofa on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information, visit them at www.jofa.org. That's J-O-F-A dot O-R-G. Or contact them at jofa at jofa.org. Okay, let's talk about teaching Nita to women. What is it like to teach women the halakha, the law of their own bodies? The Nita year in Yeshiva Marat is a complicated year. Um, I had to learn the importance of listening um, over and over again so that I could hear both what the students, what you all had to say, as well as I could learn to hear the text in a different way. Um, Teaching about abortion is obviously also a painful topic. Having had your mom in that class was an extraordinary (laughs) experience. I don't remember that. Um, That was like, just be be cray, like happened to be that way. Um, And it was hard. Like I, I had never, I had taught those same sugyot in other adult ed settings, even in mixed settings with male and female, but it wasn't that kind of a setting where we had so much trust in the room. So part of what makes it so hard and what makes the emotion so raw is that we all trust each other. That trust demands honesty. And so when it gets hard, you can't just turn the page. You got to face it head on. I remember the summer before, as I was preparing the material, I said to Rabbi Sarah, I don't think I can teach this part. I think I need to bring you in for this. I was, I was thinking particularly about Bidikot, things that were like really about a woman's body. And she said to me, no, you have to teach this. So I said, well, what do you mean? She said, it's Torah. You have to teach it. I was like, okay, but it makes me feel uncomfortable. She says, well, get over it. Um, and she pushed me hard. Um, and I think she was right. Were you uncomfortable saying the words or were you just uncomfortable being a man telling women like, this is what you Yeah, I'm okay using the appropriate language to refer to women's bodies. We use, you know, anatomically appropriate terms and not sort of rabbinic euphemisms. Um, But it just felt bizarre to me to tell a woman how to examine her own genitalia. That was like a bizarre thing for me to be talking about. That was the most, for me, that was the hardest. I was nervous about teaching Bidikot. It turned out that teaching Hargasha and what it means to feel the onset of the period was much more complicated because the things that the Gemara was describing, I guess I knew in my head abstractly women didn't experience, but to then teach that to women was disruptive. It, like, didn't, it didn't make sense. So I was like reading the Gemara. I have like an insight into this suga. I think it's kind of cool. And then you were all like, but what, am, what is, does it make any sense? Can you give an example? Can you think of an example? So like the Rishonim talk about feeling the opening of the uterus, and that's not a thing that women feel. And I guess, I mean, I had an amazing teacher, Rabbi Linzer, is an extraordinary posek and sensitive. One could not imagine a more sensitive, compassionate posek. But he's a guy. So therefore, he doesn't understand the disconnect, um, even though I'm sure his wife helps him to understand it. But to teach that material, that's to, that there are rabbis talking to other rabbis, male rabbis talking to other male rabbis about women's bodies, and women are nowhere to be found, it was just absurd at some point. Um, and it actually comes out to, the, the ignorance is deeply troubling, and it ends up making mistakes. 
and people postulating correctly because they just don't understand biology or, or the physical stuff of what's going on in women's bodies. Do you think that having been a man in this space and having that experience has made you think differently about how men talk about women's bodies in a male space kind of like outside of religion? I think I was always kind of sensitive. I locker room talk was not like a part of my life. But I will say the following, which is to coming back to the yeshiva experience, men who only learn Hilchot Nida with men don't really know Hilchot Nida. And they need to find a woman whom they can trust. And many men end up marrying women who they can trust. And that's, oh, that's great if your wife is able to sort of understand the halakha and you know, be as aware, she has the awareness of her body and can talk about it but it's a real, it's a mistake. You know, it's not just different in that regard. If you learn Hilchot Shabbat with only men, you could probably make sense out of Muqtza and Sikresha. But if you learn Hilchot Nida with only men, you're simply never going to understand the problematics. Do you think you're more comfortable now teaching? Yes. So right this year, we decided in Yeshiva that Rabbi Dvora and Rabbi Wendy are teaching Hilchot Nida, and I'm teaching Gemara this year. But for the Kolel, I'm going to teach half the year, Rabbi Dvora half the year. Part of that was because the fact that we're blessed with women who can teach at that level is a good thing and they should be, women should be teaching and it's great. Um, part of that was also because I wanted to teach Gemara. I haven't had a chance to teach Gemara in a long time. It comes with a little more creativity and it gives me some more time to write. But as we were talking about it and there were a lot of moving parts, we made the decision not because on principle we believe that a man should not teach Nida, but that it was important for me as part of a cycle to sort of cycle into Gemara occasionally. Um, and I think for sure, over the years, having taught it, you know, half a dozen times now, I'm much more comfortable both with the content and the language and kind of telescoping where there's going to be problems and understanding which are going to be the hot button issues and which are issues that we can skip and which are issues where, um, where it's important to sort of slow down. Can we talk um, about some of that? Can we pick that apart a little? What's, what's the language you've learned is important? So a simple example is the Gemara will occasionally refer to uh, the woman's vagina as a kever, um, which is literally means a grave. And almost every time that appears is in the context of a miscarriage or, uh, or God forbid, a stillborn. And so that word as a way to describe the woman's vagina is terrible. No one wants to think of a, their body as a grave, as a gravesite. But in an ancient world in which, you know, child or infant mortality was a real was a, what's a, what reality think it was a reality in a way that it's not anymore. So that made sense. And the ability to sort of explain that before the students look at the sugya, understand what kever means, um, I think is very valuable. Borrowing from some of the work of Charlotte van Robert and trying to think about the metaphors that Chazal use, what does it mean to talk about women as a house, um, all those kind of strange metaphors that appear. Um, some of them are quite beautiful to talk about the woman's womb as a ma'ayan is lovely. And to continue to use that kind of language as opposed to kever is important, but it requires the teacher to sort of not just be one week ahead of the students, but to sort of understand the arc of the whole year so that you can really prepare in advance and know when to introduce new concepts along the way. What are some of those, um, the hot button issues that you know are going to come up? And um, how do you face them head on and, and not run away from them? So one of the belie- one of the things that was created in your time was something called the misogyny jar, which was a fun tool, which was basically at Staka Box, which is a way to, um, in the middle of Shear, if something came up that was really problematic, like referring to the woman's body as a kever or not trusting women about their own bodies, 
and we would be able to say, okay, let's put a quarter or a dollar or a nickel in the misogyny jar, and then we'll come back to that at another time. It was a way of sort of naming the problem, not ignoring it, but not letting it take over sheer. And then saying, okay, we'll have time at lunchtime or next week in the afternoon to spend time thinking about this particular issue and the problematics of the way in which the rabbis talk about women's bodies. And that, that was an important step, is remembering that sometimes just naming the problematics is like half the challenge. Because for most of the time when this is taught, people just turn the page and ignore the problematics. And the ability to pause, name it, own it, and continue learning, I think, is part of what makes learning in the yeshiva special, uh, is to be able to sort of do both of those pieces. During my time in the yeshiva, some of the most difficult talks and texts were not about Nida, they were actually about Masachet Ketubot, which we learned with a woman, Rabbanit Devor's Lachauer. I couldn't stop thinking how wild it was that high school boys learned this Masachet, this tractate, that seems to view a woman's personhood as only secondary to her sexual status. I felt like I finally understood why rabbis teach it this way. It's because they were taught it this way, and this is all they know. I wanted Rab Jaff to reflect on this as a man who has learned it in an all-male space and then moved over into a woman's Beit Midrash. So I really do think that this is a good example of how change comes from the Beit Midrash in a way that's more sustainable. I learned Masechik Dubot in my year in Shalavim, and women were body parts and totally objectified. It was an all-male environment. People weren't mean or rude um, and didn't speak sort of in a disparaging way about women. Women were just objectified. And that wasn't ever even, no one ever even said, hey guys, by the way, there's something problematic going on here. Now that was in Shalavi. When I got to YCT, as a student of YCT with Rabbi Linzer, he would problematize it, um, but he couldn't do it in the same, with the same emotional depth as the women in Maharai, which is a different kind of experience for them. But once I got to the yeshiva and you start teaching about um, women's bodies in terms of abortion, in terms of nida, and it wasn't an abstract idea, but it was the person sitting in the room whose body had been objectified and is now actually using her body to nurse, that experience can sometimes, it, it can move in a, it, sometimes it moves in a problematic direction. It actually leads sometimes to people question the authority in, in deep sense of the authority of Chazal and the challenges of, of a munat chachamim, not in kind of a das Torah way, the challenge of you know, having faith that the system is meaningful uh, is not a small challenge. Um, and I think that for the students in Maharad who take Kalacha seriously, that year in particular, or Masechek Tubot in particular, can really raise serious emunah questions. This is, if these are who our rabbis are, if these are our founding kind of guiding lights, what does that mean? And those are hard questions, and I think we have to you know, seriously confront them and not ignore them. The, the feminist critique of Halacha is, is not small, and when you take it seriously, it demands demands a lot. It really claims you in a serious, in a way that's not so, not simple to answer. I do believe there are ways to move it forward. Um, and at some level, when it comes from a woman who is deeply steeped in the tradition, who has taught 120 kalas and has the experience of her own life and her own learning, it can bring a real type of tikkun for the last 2,000 years. So one of the great quotes that I've heard in the name of different I heard it from one of Rav Moshe Feinstein's grandsons in the name of Rav Moshe Feinstein, is that there, there is no such thing as a she'ila, there is only a sho'el. Uh, there's such a thing as an, ab, there's no abstract question, there are only individual questioners. And individual, what that means is that the experience of the questioner is a piece of the question. You can't separate those two pieces. 
And when you try to imagine that halacha's math, it just falls apart. Was there ever a time where you just felt so incredibly male in such a female space? There was one time where everyone said, let's go to Sephora, and I thought you were going farm shopping. <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to think, was there, did I ever really feel uncomfortable? Not as a, it wasn't like a male-female thing. There were times I felt uncomfortable because people were weird. Um, there were only six of us, so. <laughs> <laughs> Without mentioning any names. Many graduates of Yeshivat Maharat are familiar with being the only women in a male space. We know that sometimes it requires acting a bit more carefully. I'm curious if and how Reb Jeff had to act differently in this women's space. Part of, part of what I was always super careful about was, was Yehud, both in the halachic sense, but really never being alone. And so, you know, the way the Drisha classrooms worked was that there were always these huge windows and doors with windows and nothing ever really locked. So that was easy. Um, and even in the in the HIR, there's there's hard it's like counseling happens like in the sanctuary, this huge open space with huge open windows. And so I was always hyper careful about that, both because of halacha, and also because of a fear that if somebody you know were to make a claim that I touched them or spoke inappropriately, that would be the end of my career. Um, even if I did nothing, just the cl- that claim would sort of sink me. That's also something you instilled in us. Yeah, I mean that's serious. It goes both ways. Um, I think there's like, there was a deep understanding, maybe, I I don't know if it's different now, it might be, but in the beginning, you were the only man in that space. So you were kind of like, our everything. And there was an understanding that when we were women entering wherever in the clergy we were going to be, we were going to also occupy this kind of everything space for people. You know, we watched you as our role model of how to handle these relationships. And besides for the the formal training that we had about always have a window, um, never, you know, meet at someone's house, someone's house by yourself, all of that, you know, all of that. I think now looking back, I hadn't even thought of it. You really modeled for us something that could have ended up being really problematic in our careers. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're seeing it with me too stuff. We're seeing it, you know, over and again with different people, you know, who are, who just take advantage of those positions of power in ways that are really troubling and problematic. And you have to work hard to make sure that doesn't happen. You have to work hard that you're never even in a suffolk position. What have you learned about women from being in a women's yeshiva? I mean, I said this before, but I think the importance of listening and not necessarily needing to solve every problem and the power of validation and just how far that can go. What else have you learned about women? <laughs> um, women, it's, uh, women wear their emotions on their sleeves in a way that men just don't. And that's real. And there's different styles of learning and those different styles, you know, cross age groups and, and socioeconomic backgrounds in, in all sorts of fascinating ways. Women, so being free with their emotions also means there is a different kind of spirituality. We didn't actually talk about this, the difference between male and female spirituality, not just educationally, but there's a kind of spirituality that happens in a female space that's different. Um, there's a, a room for creativity. We've always tried to make Mincha to be a place of creativity, and some years we're successful, some years we're not, uh, to allow the students to sort of meditate, you know, sing, daven together, daven out loud, daven quietly, daven Besiako style. And in some years it works, and some years it doesn't. Um, but to watch that creativity is different than it is in the male space. Do you think any part of the spirituality comes with not taking it for granted, like not taking the learning, but also that the 
learning is happening in a women's smicha program. Yeah, it does feel like that's still a gift, even in a world where people grew up in modern Orthodox co-educational high schools, where it feels like their education could be almost the same as their male counterparts. The gift of a Beit Midrash that takes women's voices seriously is uh, not, not something to be taken granted. It's, it's, a, it's a bracha. Reb Jeff has done some groundbreaking work in the LGBTQ plus space. I wanted to explore how he found himself in that space and what that space means to him. So about 10 years ago now, 10 years, maybe 10 years, no, eight years, eight years ago before, before, about 10 years ago, I was involved with with a conversion of an adult transgender man. And that conversion is really what opened me up into the LGBTQ from world. It's a from man who discovered late in life that his, that he needed another conversion, making a long story short. Um, and I, that built a relationship with Rabbi Steve Greenberg, and that kind of opened me up into the world of Eshel. And, uh, and I began doing all sorts of interesting work and meeting with people and connecting to people in, in ways that I hadn't imagined in the past. And then when my eldest son was in eighth grade, he came out to Beth and I, and then he kind of came out publicly in the beginning of ninth grade in high school. And then all of a sudden, a lot of these young queer kids in high schools um, around New York mostly kind of started reaching out to me because they saw or my son told them that I was like a safe address um, where I would at least listen and talk through issues. And between kind of some of my professional work, particularly in the area of conversion, as well as just my son being who he is, I kind of became connected to this young from queer community as a teacher and as also as a listener. Um, and I learned a lot from, from those folks. I learned a lot about language and gender and how all these things work, um, a whole vocabulary that was new to me. Um, and that you guys also helped me sort of wrap my head around, you know, time and again. And, you know, the reality of misogyny and homophobia in the world in general, and the Orthodox community in particular, are deeply painful. And the fact is that women feel still on the sidelines. And that pain is real. And the pain that from queer folks experience on a day-to-day basis um, is just another level. And the fact is that that's not coming. It's often not coming from a place of halakha. It's just coming from hatred in a harsh sense or ignorance sometimes. And once people get beyond the questions of vaikra, you know, the way the community operates should be, and it seems obvious to me, totally welcoming. And the fact that it's not is a, is a deep loss. And um, I think the community is the poorer for it. And uh, you know, hopefully we can imagine a world in which people of all genders and all sexualities can see their portion as a part of Torah as well. What's it like to be a white male cis person who represents this very old law um, and bringing that to a very fluid community of gender, of language, and of belief. So I have all the privileges as a white straight male um, living in America, and that's real. And I think the way that we're meant to use our privilege is to enable other people to succeed. In a lot of ways, that's really what I see my job is doing, is allowing people who have felt like they're outside of the tradition to find their voice inside of it, and then to become leaders in their own right. I think both the community and the Torah are made better because that happens. Whether that's 
bringing women into halakhic discourse at the highest level or bringing gay men to be part of our Jewish community or members of synagogues and like simple things um, makes our community better. What do you think the future is for women in halakhic discourse? Do you think in a hundred years, the way whoever is teaching Nida in Maharat is going to be different because there will be formal female voices in the conversation? It's an interesting kind of question. Like, how will halakha be different? So I guess that in order for the system to change, in order for women to really be part of halakhic discourse, women need to write halakha. And so my charge to the students and graduates is take the time. It's not easy. It's painstaking. And, but you have the skills. You just have to work on it. And that means one topic at a time, one siman at a time, one zaif at a time. Keep going back and take the time to write. And if you get a shaila, write it up. Even just put it on a Facebook post, write. It'll change the playing field automatically. What does the future of women rabbinic leadership look like to you? So much is changing because of the pandemic. The answer to that question is so different today than it would have been six months ago. I think the pandemic gives us an opportunity to imagine a Jewish community that isn't centered around davening in a minion in shul. And that has certain advantages for female rabbis for whom the minion is like the hardest part. Basically every other part of shul life, teaching and counseling and announcing pages um, can and should be open to women. And the pandemic has reminded us that while shul is about davening and there are lots of other things that shul life can be, and in a kind of ironic way, what pandemic shuls have taught us is that women can be the senior rabbi of an Orthodox shul without much of a problem. If you can organize, you know, a dozen different Rosh Hashanah minyanim with 10 men and three women in, a, in 30 different places. And so with enough work on the, on the part of enough kabayim, women can be a rabbi of a shul in a, in a, without question, without being just the assistant, without being the number two, without being co-leadership. We used to imagine that the ideal was a co-leadership model, and there are certain advantages to that in a bigger shul. But most shuls can't afford to have two full-time or even a full and a part-time clergy member. Um, but you could really have a, a, a woman as the senior or solo rabbi of a shul, as Rabbi Nitasi is doing it, and the pandemic has taught us that it's possible. Do you see the challenges that graduates face now? Let's like outside the pandemic because everyone's facing challenges now because of it. Are the challenges that the graduates are facing now different than the challenges that they were facing 10 years ago? There's been a real professional shift in the sense that there was a push both on the part of kind of the institution and there was a drive on the part of the students to join pulpits in some way or another. And that has very much diversified. And there's a small piece of me that it's upset by that, that it feels like it's a loss, um, but I actually ultimately think it's better, um, not simply because of the pandemic, but because the Jewish community, the Orthodox community is much more diverse than synagogue life. And the impact that you can have as a day school Rebbe or as a hospital chaplain or as a Hillel rabbi, um, in many ways, if done well and done right, can be the same as or different than or greater than what the local shul rabbi can have. And so having women who work in all these different settings, I think actually puts the community in a place where women are everywhere. They're not just in Riverdale, or they're not just in one small section or one small sector, but really can be spread out. But I think the model is going to be startup shuls and entrepreneurship, which is what we've been, you know, we've been bringing in more and more of that, both with Maya Bernstein and Dan Smokler to try to really bring entrepreneurship to the to, to as a, like a centerpiece of the leadership curriculum.
What advice would you give a male rabbi who's hiring a graduate of Yeshivat Maharat? Well, some of it would be the same for any kind of graduate from any rabbinical school, male or female, which is to say, you know, highlight the strengths of your assistant or your co- your colleague and um, help them cover their weaknesses with support in one way or another. I would remind them about the importance of Hilchot Yehud and how to manage that in a professional relationship uh, where you're going to be working closely with somebody of the opposite sex and what that looks like and how that works. And then I would push them to think broadly about what are the roles that they're prepared to sort of seed. Again, this isn't particularly gendered, but senior rabbis often have a hard time letting the new professional, the new clergy member take on roles. And if you don't let particularly women have a leadership role, whether that's in life cycles or in teaching or in counseling, so it'll just never happen. I want to just push on that a little bit because it sounds a little bit to me like how you thought teaching was going to go. There was really nothing gendered in that. And I want to push you and make it gendered because I'm wondering if, if a male rabbi who's hiring a maharat treats her the same way as she would a graduate of another male rabbinical school, is that gender blindness going to be an issue? In the first cohort specifically, there was a real fear of bringing our womanness to our rabbiness. And mm. I think that's probably changed, but I'm wondering, you had a crash course in this. What what would you tell these male rabbis? What does it mean to hire these women and see them and use them as women? So I guess what I would say to them was, I learned the importance of listening and the importance of process. And that is in some ways gender. That is to say, there are going to be all sorts of issues that come up in terms of how to develop a working relationship with a new colleague. And don't imagine that whatever relationship you had before is going to be exactly the same because there's going to be all sorts of new issues on the table and there's going to be emotions at the surface in a way that they weren't there before. And learning to hear and listen and validate without necessarily having an answer at the end of every meeting is an important uh, way to think about the ways in which men, men and women may operate differently in the professional sphere as well. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed. And don't forget to check out all the other episodes from this drop. As always, we'd love to hear from you at maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org. That's maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org.